Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 AM. My name is Ruth Hagen-Gruber, coming from Germany, and happy to be here. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. But for the homeless, always wither. Like cut flowers. Thanks very much. I've got Kelly in the studio reading out a quote. Do you want to give your organisation a plug? Uh, yeah, well, we, we do a show here on 3CR called Ruminations that aired earlier today at uh, 12 o'clock. That's a homelessness and housing program. And I also work for the Homeless Persons Union Victoria, which is a peer-developed and run homeless organisation. Great. Yes, a very important topic so you're listening to radical philosophy and i'm your host beth matthews and i'm speaking to associate professor karen green about Catherine mccauley and letitia barbald and welcome to the program thank you now can you give us a little bit of background about yourself so i'm a senior research fellow in philosophy at the university of melbourne Previously, I taught at Monash University for 23 years, but I left Monash uh, early in 2014. I've worked in a lot of different areas in philosophy. I started off in the 1970s and studied analytic philosophy of language, and I still work in that area. But when it came to being employed, I had a very hard time getting a continuing position And so I ended up teaching whatever I was asked to teach. Indeed, at one stage, Barry Taylor, who was here at Melbourne University for a long time, called me, get it up green. (laughs) (laughs) So I've taught uh, in uh, the history of philosophy, feminism, environmental ethics, political philosophy, etc., etc. So I kind of got into the history of women's political thought accidentally. In 1986, I moved to Tasmania to be with my husband. And in their wisdom, the philosophy department there didn't give me a job. But I managed to get work in political science. And I set up the first politics of feminism course at the University of Melbourne. And the lectures that I wrote for that course resulted in a draft of a book My first book, The Woman of Reason, which came out in 1995 and was on the strength of that draft and my other publications that I got a job at Monash, where I was for many years. So that's more or less my background. (laughs) So why, why was it that it was so difficult for you to get any employment within philosophy? Was it because you're a woman? Uh, Well... I think so, but we won't go down that story because we'll never end. We'll never get to Catherine McCauley and Letitia Barvold. <laughs> so what inspired you to study both of them? 
Well, look, it goes back to that uh, 1995 book, The Woman of Reason. When I wrote that book, I knew about Christine de Pizan, who wrote in the early 15th century, and Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote in the late 18th century. But I didn't know anything about women who were politically or philosophically engaged in the 400 years which separate Christine de Pizan and Mary Wollstonecraft. Those women had been airbrushed out of the history of ideas, and I'd say they're airbrushed out as part of the ideology of male intellectual superiority. You know, there's a circularity. If you think that women are men's intellectual inferiors, you don't look for their works to study. If their works aren't studied, you don't know about them, and so you think that women haven't made any intellectual contributions. So that was the belief that I that was around when I began university and began studying. And look, I've actually got a little quote here from David Stove, who was Professor of Philosophy at the University of Sydney when I was doing my PhD. In 1993, he published a paper in a respectable philosophy journal called Philosophy, which was called The Subjection of John Stuart Mill. And he started off like this. There is no opinion so absurd, but that some philosopher has held it. That's a quote from Cicero. But Stove goes on to say that actually what Cicero says is not literally true. There, he says, there is no philosopher who has held the opinion that the intellectual capacity of women is equal to that of men. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so this, is the, this was the, the sort of environment in which you know, we were trained and brought up. But in fact, well, David Stove is, is wrong. Of course, there's another circularity. There were plenty of women who claimed their intellectual equality was men, but they didn't count as philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, despite all the social and biological constraints which have made it difficult for women to pursue philosophy, when you begin to do the research, you find that there are really a large number of exceptional women who've written and published philosophical and politically and you know, politically engaged works. And so the, the work on Catherine Macaulay and Letitia Barbauld is part of this larger project that I've been engaged in with, in particular with Jacqueline Broad, to write a history of women's political thought. In the late 1990s, Jacqueline Broad came to Monash and wrote her PhD on 17th century women philosophers. And since then, we've been collaborating. So we published a history of women's political thought in Europe from 1400 to 1700 with Cambridge University Press in 2009. And after doing that, Jackie was more interested in concentrating on the early 18th century feminist writer Mary Astell. And so I worked on the 18th century women alone. And in 2014, I published the sequel, if you like, to <laughs> the 2009 book covering uh, 1700 to 1800. And Macaulay and Barbauld appeared there. So what was Macaulay and Barbauld? <laughs> what was their biographical background? So they both come from comfortable middle-class families. In Macaulay's case, actually, her family was very wealthy. Barbauld was born Letitia Aiken, and her father was a teacher in a couple of dissenting colleges, in particular a college at Warrington, which is between Liverpool and Manchester. And because she grew up surrounded by 
boys who were being educated and she had a slightly younger brother who, in a way, she helped educate when he was young. She was able to access a pretty good education. In fact, she even got her father to teach her Greek and Latin, which was rather unusual for a woman. Macaulay was wealthier. She was born Sawbridge. Her grandfather had made a lot of money in the famous South Sea Company, which collapsed, and he'd been arrested and disgraced when there was this financial bubble and collapse. But the family had managed to retain really quite a lot of property, and so she grew up in a big house in Kent called Alanti. I think both of them, maybe because they had brothers who were quite close in age, at least to start off with, were educated with their brothers at home, and that gave them a fairly decent foundation, though Macaulay is very dismissive of her her governess. And both of them became were really quite confident. A lot of earlier women writers make excuses for their ignorance and, and bad education, but in a sense, uh, Letitia Barbold and, to a less, slightly less extent, Catherine Macaulay, sort of emerge as confident fully-fledged writers in the 1760s and 1770s. You describe both of them as being 18th-century Republicans. Yeah, using the term rather loosely. They were both advocates for political and religious liberty, and they were both inspired to write in support of the Corsican Republican Pasquale Paoli. He was very famous at the period. Corsica was fighting against Genoa, for its independence. And Letitia Barbald wrote a big poem celebrating Corsica and its Republican government. Uh, Catherine Macaulay wrote a sketch for a, a democratic Republican government, which was addressed to Paoli. And Horace Walpole you know, certainly treated them together as Republicans, but when I say Republicans, they they were in favour of liberty, but they would have been quite happy with a constitutional monarchy. They were against absolutism, and they were in favour of equality before the law. But I thought I'd also quote this bit from Edmund Burke. Both uh, Letitia Barbald and Catherine Macaulay responded to Burke's observations on the French Revolution, his conservative critique of the French Revolution, And both of them supported the revolution. And Walpole, Horace Walpole, said of them, or of Burke, his foes show how deeply they are wounded by their abusive pamphlets. Their Amazonian allies, headed by Kate Macaulay and the Virago Barbald, whom Mr Burke calls our poissade, spit their rage at 18 pence a head and will return to Fleet Ditch more fortunate in being forgotten than their predecessors immortalised in the Dunciad. So from the point of view of Horace Walpole, Barbald and Macaulay were a pair of fishwives who ought to be forgotten. What he means by their predecessors immortalised in the Dunciad is uh, he's referring back to Pope, Alexander Pope's uh, satirical poem, The Dunciad, in which Pope attacked an earlier female writer, Eliza Haywood. And so, from Walpole's point of view, it'll be good if uh, Kate Macaulay and Ed Barbald are not even remembered as uh, Eliza Haywood has been. So, they were seen as Republicans, 
and they were seen as radicals, even though from our point of view, they were perhaps uh, moderate Democrats. (laughs) So could you tell us about any publications that they had? Well, they both had really substantial outputs. Barbold was mostly a poet, and there are 171 poems in her collected poetry. But she also wrote essays. Uh, She wrote A Life of Samuel Richardson. She edited a big collection of British novelists and wrote the introduction to that collection and introductions to all of the books that she published in that. So that was a big contribution to literary criticism. She was a pioneer in writing children's books with large print and uh, stories that were at, directed at the kind of intellectual levels of, of a child. And so, you know, there's a, a large corpus of, of works there. Macaulay, in a sense, published even more. Macaulay was best known as a historian, and she published an eight-volume history of England, which began with the reign of, Charles, of James I, James I of England in in the early 17th century and it ultimately concluded with the Glorious Revolution of 1688. So that eight volumes, those eight volumes which are very substantial, very well researched, full of footnotes, it took 20 years for her to complete. The first volume came out in 1763 and the last one in 1783. They were particularly the first five volumes which covered the period of the English Civil War and the Parliament and the execution of Charles I were very widely read and very influential in the build-up to the American Revolution. She also published political, educational and metaphysical works and the response to Burke that I just mentioned and a book called The Letters on Education which argued for co-education and had a profound influence on Mary Wollstonecraft. So not very many people recognise the important influence of of Catherine Macaulay on Mary Wollstonecraft, but outside in the street here, you've got a quote from Wollstonecraft, there can be no virtue without equality. That's an idea that's already in Catherine Macaulay from 20 years earlier. So. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial and I'm speaking with Associate Professor Karen Green about Macaulay and Barbold. <laughs> what were the similarities and the differences in their philosophies? So they were both part of a broad um, radical Whig if you like, group in England so they were friends with people like Joseph Priestley, Richard Price and James Burr. And if you like, this is a kind of group of Protestant dissenters. Barbald's background in particular was Presbyterian and so she was part of the, this dissenting group within uh, England. Macaulay doesn't seem to have left the Church of England but she was good friends with Quakers and with, uh, with all these other individuals, men in particular, who were interested in in civil liberty. They were both probably Unitarians and they shared this optimistic Enlightenment faith that the world was progressing towards justice and political liberty. So once again, I thought I'd just quote something from Barbald to give you a sort of sense of 
her views and I guess the optimism that she is expressing in this quote with the coming of French Revolution in this case. So this is Letitia Barbauld, and it's kind of rhetorical in a style that she she rather liked. So she she's saying, Liberty, here with lifted crozier in her hand and the crucifix conspicuous on her breast, there led by philosophy and crowned with the civic reef, animates men to assert their long-forgotten rights with a policy far more liberal and comprehensive than the boasted establishments of Greece and Rome. She diffuses her blessing to every class of men and even extends a smile of hope and promise to the poor African, the victim of hard, impenetrable avarice. Man as man becomes an object of respect. So that's how she responded to the French Revolution (laughs) with a great optimism for the uh, increasing humanity and uh, liberty of mankind. I think the differences come out between them come out in the different genres they choose and also the different attitudes to them that uh, Mary Wollstonecraft showed. So Macaulay, as I said, argued for equal co-education for girls. She wanted girls and boys to be educated together and to be given exactly the same really quite tough education that she built out. And she clearly thought that women should aspire to make a mark in all fields of intellectual endeavour, as she was trying to do in history. Mm. Barbauld was much more ambivalent about women's education. She was a bit closer to Rousseau, who thought that women should be educated to be good wives. Although she'd had a very good education, she thought that she was something of an exception, and she didn't think that that was necessarily the way that all girls should, should go. So she thought that she had a, a more domestic idea of women's role. So Macaulay was like Wollstonecraft in being completely opposed to Rousseau's views on women's education and their proper social role. And in fact, that was one of the areas where Macaulay influenced Wollstonecraft. So Wollstonecraft uh, held Macaulay in great respect. She sent her a letter at one stage saying, "You you are the woman that I admire most because you aspire to laurels whereas others only aspire to flowers (laughs) and in the vindication of the rights of women she says of of Macaulay she was the woman of the greatest abilities that this country has ever produced and she had rather less time for poets she says you know novels and music poetry and gallantry all tend to make women the creatures of sensation and sentiment and she criticized Barbauld's poetry and in particular her comparison of women with flowers so she sort of sees this as Barbauld as as being more on the sort of sentimental side of poetic and novel writing and Wollstonecraft see that as kind of debasing women she wants she like like Macaulay her ideal for women is a very sort of independent and rational one so you could say that, that in a way, Macaulay and Barbel were both interested in promoting a new age of equality and virtue, but they, the means that they chose from promoting that age were different, and also their ideas concerning virtue of women differed. That's how I, you know, I kind of see them as uh, standing in relation to each other. Look, I was just wondering, did they marry or have any children, and how did this affect their study? Well, as I kind of mentioned, they both married. <laughs> they both married late 
in their thirties, which is interesting. I think it's so. Uh, Catherine Macaulay's mother, in particular, had you know she married. I think at about the age of fifteen, she had four children and then died. <laughs> and you can understand why maybe both of her daughters married much later, in their thirties, and also Aiken, Letitia Aiken married Rushmore Barbold in about her thirties. Aiken didn't have any children of her own, but she adopted one of her nephews, a boy called Charles, and she was very interested in his education and also with her husband. She ran a school for boys for a long time, a school called Palgrave, where they, in fact, educated a whole lot of young men who became reformers in subsequent years. So in particular, Thomas Denman, who drafted the 1832 Reform Act in England was one of their students. So Barbold's marriage was mostly quite happy except for the fact that her husband was probably manic depressive. As he got older, he became quite insane. And so that was a, a problem for her. Macaulay, I think, was very lucky in her husband. Well, particularly the first husband. Her first husband was a uh, well, he was a male midwife, or maybe you would say a gynaecologist. He was quite a lot older than she was, and I think he really encouraged her in the early years. When so after was a few years after she was married that she started producing this great big history. They had one daughter, and I think she must have really been looked after by nurses and governesses because her father was only she was only two when her father died, and. Having a daughter doesn't seem to have slowed Macaulay down at all in terms of producing these big volumes of history, which the first five, they came out sort of one every two years, basically, for you know, for quite a, well, about eight years. So later, when Macaulay travelled, her daughter, Catherine Sophia, stayed with her, her aunt and uncle. When she was 47, Macaulay married... A, took her second husband, who was only 21, a guy called William Graham. And this caused an absolute scandal because whether it was true or not, all the press suggested that the reason why she uh, married such a, a young man was because she had sexual appetites. And having sexual appetites was not appropriate, particularly not in an intellectual woman. So there's really some quite funny material there in the response to uh, Catherine Macaulay's marriage to the younger William Graham. It didn't help that his brother was a very strange doctor who had a temple of health where he provided a marriage bed in order to encourage people's fertility. So, <laughs> Now, you mentioned Mary Wollstonecraft, but were there any other enlightened women of their time that influenced their thought? Well, I think I have to give a sort of yes and a no answer to this. By the time Macaulay and Barbauld were born, it had become quite common for women to go into print. Okay, There was particularly female novelists and female poets were not uncommon and there were also quite a few women writing journalistic essays. But it was still something that people did that you know, for women to go into print was seen as immodest and particularly upper-class women were risking their reputations by, by writing. There were some women like uh, 
Mary de la Riviera Manley and Eliza Haywood, who, whose reputations perhaps had already been ruined and so they didn't mind going into print <laughs> and were even quite outrageous. There were others, like Sarah Scott, who still felt that they had to publish anonymously. And then there were people like Sarah Fielding and Catherine Coburn and Elizabeth Carter, who had managed to establish themselves with kind of respectable erudite reputations. And so it was not by the middle of the 18th century kind of so unusual for women to go into print. But I think that they are unusual for the radical political content of their works. It's one of the kind of paradoxes of feminist writing in the early 18th century that some of the most articulate um, feminists are also quite conservative politically. And I'm thinking mainly here of Mary Astell, who wrote the sort of wonderful sentence, if all men are born free, how is it that all women are born slaves? But really she's writing against this doctrine of liberty and equality and saying of men that you expect women to be subject to you and you ought to be subject to the king or the queen. So she's not promoting political liberty in general. But both Macaulay and Barbold, and Macaulay in particular, influenced politically more by male philosophers such as Locke and Elgin and Sidney and Rousseau and Milton, who are all in favour of, of, well, the right to overthrow an unjust government. And I guess Milton is, you know, he's, he's writing during the English Civil War and he's in favour of a kind of Christian commonwealth. So insofar as they're promoting equal rights and republicanism, there aren't very many earlier women who have the same views. There is one, Catherine Coburn, who may have influenced Macaulay, but I can't actually prove that that's the case. Uh, What was their connection with Edmund Burke? Well, as I mentioned, they both opposed him. And I think it's rather strange that in this day and age, crusty old conservative men like Burke and Samuel Johnson, who both believed in aristocracy and monarchy, should still be read and mentioned with respect, while these idealistic radical women who looked forward to an egalitarian society of virtuous citizenship were where, to quote Macaulay, the common good would be the common care, are mostly ignored and forgotten, and, in the case of Macaulay, remain unedited. Do you have any future study plans within this field? Well, at the moment I am writing a political... I, I'm writing a uh, an intellectual biography of Catherine Macaulay and preparing an edition of her letters. And I'm not quite sure where I'm going to go after that. Uh, it partly depends on um, whether I get some research support or which way my uh, my interest it goes. <laughs> I did have a, a, a little um, quote where, to quote Macaulay, the common good would be the common care, are mostly ignored and forgotten, and, in the case of Macaulay, remain unedited. Great. Well, thanks very much for coming (laughs) onto the program today. Speaking to Associate Professor 
Karen Green about Catherine McCauley and Letitia Barbald. You've been listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Hope you've enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company.